Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. Yes, it is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 199. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell. And we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two mighty fine conversations for you this week on the podcast in the second half. The great writer David Roth from Defector.com, co-host with Drew McGarry of the Distraction Podcast. And as always with David, we cover a wide swath of ground from the baseball lockout to the NBA season and in between thoughts on people like Tommy Tuberville and more. Up first, though, another guy who's got a lot of thoughts, and he likes to share them when he visits with us. We're talking about... Actor Richard Schiff, the Emmy and Golden Globe Award winner, long run as Toby Ziegler on The West Wing, and for several seasons playing Dr. Aaron Glassman on the ABC hit television series, The Good Doctor. They recently began airing new episodes of The Good Doctor, and we talked with Richard about that and, well, the state of the world. Here's Richard Schiff on Downtown, the podcast. Well, Richard, let's talk about uh, the the track that's gone on here with your character uh, dr glassman in season five of the good doctor uh, your ex-wife got involved you helped out a lot of things going on here a lot of questions that need to be answered um yeah okay well go ahead question away okay, <laughs> have to see, see what i can remember uh, okay <laughs> well uh yeah um well first of all what about what about sean and leah are they going to are they going to make it work um, I think that's the question that everyone will be asking who's watching. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, my guess is no. No, I'm kidding. I, I have, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I haven't read future scripts yet. I think we're a little ahead of the audience because there was a little break in the, uh, in the episodes that were airing. Um, and I don't quite know where you guys are, um, but um, it's... Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think Glassman certainly thinks that they're going to work out because I think he's taken a liking to Leah, although it took a, took a little bit of time, or Paige, I mean, or Leah. No, it's Paige. <laughs> Wait, what's your name on the show? I always forget. <laughs> Leah. Leah on the show. I, Leah. I always <laughs> call her uh, Paige on, on, on the set and Leah off the set. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, I mean, she seems uh, uh, capable of handling uh, Sean, and I think it's what's moving classman out of the role of, you know, a primary caretaker, mentor, uh, and so on. I think that's going to become Leah soon if it all works out, and who knows if it will. So are you still shooting season five? Yeah, I'm going back. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, not in Vancouver at the moment because of uh, my wife's um, search, you know, surgery, nothing to worry about, just a, a, a knee issue. Um, and... Um, uh, and I'm going back to Vancouver, uh, and then we're going to pick it up. So we shoot until uh, the end of April or so, somewhere around then. What is it, uh, Richard, that you've found in this character that, that makes it interesting and challenging for you as an actor? Uh, well, it's always challenging to find something that's challenging. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, sometimes, you know, uh, 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 for me, um, uh, I think he's a bit confused about what he wants in life uh, based on the writing this year. You know, I mean, he's taken off to Montana to find paradise, literally <laughs> the town of paradise. And um, uh, 
Uh, I think he felt that Sean could take care of himself and then found out that that wasn't quite uh, true. And he came back um, because Sean was flipping out a little bit. And so you got, uh, and he, you know, and then he, next thing you know, he's in surgery. So you have to, um, you have to figure out how to justify all these different things, you know, because um, in your mind, if you're uh, as an actor, you're thinking, oh, okay, he's retiring, he's moving to Montana. There must be something darker and deeper going on in there that's causing this to happen and then to come back so quickly um, and make it work in the hospital. Uh, you know, it's odd. And so you have to find a way to, to justify all that. And, um, and then moment to moment, I'm always looking for ways to make uh, things more interesting and to, you know, challenge us as, as actors to find um, moments, you know, moments is what, is what strings a story together. A story is, you know, a long string, a long line of moments, like chain link fence, you know, and you want to keep finding what uh, what is interesting in in each uh, in moment. Why the scene exists. What could you know? Um, if the scene doesn't need to be there, um, you know, is the scene really necessary? Is it urgent? Is it uh, important? And you have to justify all those things. So it's a it's a challenge. You know, uh, um, Shakespeare wrote it out all for you. You know what I mean? Uh, he he um, and and in television often. Um, and especially in episod, uh, what is this called? Episodics. Uh, mm, um, right. and it's, uh, just, uh, there's, uh, I forget what they call them. The ones where each, each show is kind of a one-off, um, like, you know, like law and order. Um, they don't necessarily spend all the time in the world developing, you know, justification for acting. You know, like I've been watching 1883, that show. Oh yeah. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. But look at the time they give for each moment. Um, and it's a whole another kind of storytelling. It's an epic story, of, you know, uh, and those actors are given wonderful opportunities to, uh, to really um, delve into uh, everything that happens to them. And here it's really about moving the story along. Uh, things happen very quickly, and, um, and plots need to come to a conclusion at the end of the hour, you know. So uh, that's the challenge. The challenge is to, is to make all of that justified and to make it as interesting as you possibly can. Wow, that was a long-winded answer. No, no, it was great. Now, you've been fortunate enough, not every actor gets the opportunity to be part of two very successful and long-running series, and and that's certainly great and and provides job security, but but can it be a little confining at times? A little what in times? Confining. Oh, sure, of course. I felt that way about the West Wing. You know, I mean, after a while. Um, you really want to bust out and you want, you know, after the West Wing, I went and did plays for six or seven years. I went, went to the West End and Broadway and, you know, uh, wanted to, uh, you know, expand. Um, and, uh, it is a limit to how much you can expand within one character. It's the reason why I think the storyline for Toby on the West Wing got very strange towards the end because uh, they just like were coming up with ideas and they'll go, yeah, let's do that. And, of course, some of those ideas make no sense. After the six years of building the character, uh, you know, with integrity that you've done, and it's not their fault, but it's like, you know, we got to do something. We got to do something new. We got to do something interesting. And that's, um, yeah. So uh, TV can be very uh, confining after a while, uh, and uh, you feel the, the the need to kind of bust out of the seams and try other stuff. Uh, um, the people, though, uh, 
at the conductor are really are really nice. You know, when other jobs come along, I get to I get to go off and do it and do that. And um, and the producers listen to me as much as they, you know, are, are capable of or, or or can stand. Um, and so I have a lot of effect on, you know, on 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 the way scenes uh, uh, happen. You know, the work, you know, I, I can change a few things here and there, and to, to keep it challenging for myself. So they're they're very they're very nice here. We're talking with Richard Schiff here on Downtown. Uh, well, we're all a bit preoccupied with uh, what's going on over in Europe. The situation uh, with Ukraine yeah. is just. It's horrifying. It seems to get worse with each passing day. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I often feel powerless looking at it. And I, I'm not sure what our response should be as a nation. Um, powerless is a good word. And uh, it, I feel powerless quite often uh, in the last uh, six, five or six years. Um, powerless is a really good word. Uh, of course, we can't give in to that. And we have to find ways to make a difference. Um, you know, Martin Sheen once said to me that uh, with all the activism that he does, with all the times that he's been arrested for all the um, work that he's been doing for 40 years for, you know, justice and peace and and, and disarmament and all of those issues, uh, he said to me, you know, the first time he got arrested, he realized it was about his, you know, that was his life's purpose. And then he, he goes, um, I don't think I'll... I'll make a difference because that's not the point. The point is it's you're compelled to do something, um, you're compelled to do something to make, uh, to help, uh, towards the attempt to make the world a better place. You know, it's what those Western characters were, were so beloved. I think is because every one of them were uh, purposed to make the world a better place than how they found it. And we all have to make that effort, but powerless is, is the word. You know, because you look at the utter stupidity of 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 um, geopolitics and um, uh, and the way the world functions. You know, uh, it, it's remarkable. And you know, you, 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 if you're in New York City and you watch um, 99.999% of people uh, stop at the red light at the corner. And um, follow the rules of uh, society. And you know, I drove a cab in New York. Ninety-nine point nine percent of people were amazing. Were, you know, some of them didn't say anything. Some of them were kind. Some of them uh, were generous. Some of them were beautiful in their soul. But only uh, that one point one percent of people uh, were were out to do damage to other people. And you just wonder what the what's the what's the motive? What's the mm. you know what's the purpose? Why are you doing that? Is it a psycho? Is it a psychopathic kind of uncontrollable thing? And the same thing goes with geopolitics. It's like you, you, most of the world, you know, seems to be able to get along, albeit with some great uh, disparity in wealth and 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 <laughs> and poverty. Um, that's a whole other thing. But for the most part, day to day, we get along, and then somebody comes along and wants to disrupt everything, um, uh, and it makes no sense. It makes sense when you analyze it, you know, geopolitically. Yeah, of course, he's an oil man. He, you know, oil is what's made him the most powerful man in the world. I'm talking about Putin. Um, the oil pipelines, Afghanistan, Crimea, you know, Ukraine, all make sense if you want to play three-dimensional chess with the devil. 
You know, that's what he's doing, right? Oil is going to make the difference in whether he survives or not. It's his 60% of the of the GDP in in, in Russia, right? And um, and then he comes from the KGB, and he comes from the mm. old days, and he you know he's nostalgic, and he wants the satellites back, and blah blah blah, and you know who gives a you know what I mean? Uh, he's uh, and powerless because everyone's nuclear armed, right? So you can't just send troops, and who wants to send troops? And you know, uh, you see that, that long um, supply line, that long convoy, 40 miles long, heading towards Kiev. And, you, and you know, I, who am a nonviolent uh, person who will demonstrate against any war, imagine some U.S. planes just going there and strafing it, you know, and just, just debilitating that convoy. And, you know, in and, and, and real war, that convoy wouldn't, wouldn't survive. You know, wouldn't survive airstrikes. So... <laughs> You know, powerless is the word. The Ukrainian people seem to be, you know, so lovely and so um, mm. uh, strong-willed and, and so full of heart and soul. And, you know, certainly at this point in time, and Zelensky is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, the definition of heroic. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, but <laughs> and you look at it from the other side, and this is where it gets controversial and this is where it gets complicated. You know, we are up in arms about, uh, about uh, Russia invading um, a sovereign uh, country, independent country. And yet you look at the history of all Western nations and Britain and the United States. And, right. You know, the horror of bombing uh, citizens is horrific, of course, and that should never happen. And yet we carpet bombed Baghdad twice in, 20 year, in 10 years to the tune of hundreds, hundreds of thousands of civilian deaths. So it, the hypocrisy is very apparent to me. Uh, but all that aside, if we just sweep that away for the moment, we'd love to be able to go and help the Ukrainian people and um, to stave off another, uh, another uh, just heinous um, political act by, uh, um, by a dictator and by by someone who, who literally has no concern for humanity and for whether people live or die. No, and, and for those of us old enough to grow up doing duck and cover drills and, and uh, being used yeah. to having that in the back of your mind at all times, there, there's that. And then there's the humanitarian crisis of so far over a million refugees. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> um, I grew up, uh, well, I was born in 55. I don't know how old you are, but. I was born uh, in 58, so. 58, so I was born into a whole lot of literature and a whole lot of movies, TV shows about World War II. And, um, and of course, relatives who didn't survive and um, relatives who did. And um, I, I grew up wondering how it's possible. How, would, how did that happen? You know, you grew up in the 60s in New York, and there's a lot of, you know, there's crime and there's uh, political activism and there's civil rights movements and riots and there's all kinds of stuff going on and anti-war movements and blah, blah, blah. But I still, compared to that, <clears throat> World War II seemed just way out of the, pos uh, the realm of possibility, the mm -hmm. Holocaust and, you know, 20 million Russians being killed and... and um, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans and six million Jews and millions of others um, just just eliminated. Uh, and I never quite understood how 
human beings can get to the point where they allow that to happen, much less one or two of the people who caused it, you know, or, or, or you know, one or two million, thousands, I don't know. Uh, and then I, I watched 2016, and then I watched the presidency in the United States, and I go, oh, it can happen anywhere. Right. Um, uh, you know, um, and then you, but it's not, it's not the Trump that I, that, that is the phenomenon. You know, there's always one. It's all the people that follow, defend, um, uh, reverse, um, ideology or eliminate ideology in order to make that happen. And uh, that's what, that's the phenomenon I don't understand. I don't understand the Lindsey Grahams and I don't understand you know, the, the people that all of a sudden can defend, can alter the, alter the, tr- alter the truth, um, embrace alternative facts, embrace all of the tactics of Goebbels and Hitler in the 1930s, Stalin before him, P- Putin after him. Uh, it's just it's mind-boggling, you know. And then you look, and it's all connected, Putin and, you know, Manafort, <laughs> Right. for Trump, who was the guy who was holding the, the Ukrainian dictator puppet, uh, Putin's puppet in Ukraine. He was the one, you know, and then he becomes the campaign manager for Trump. Is that holy cow? And uh, uh, um, what's his, who's the first secretary of state for Trump? I forget his name now. Um, he was the oil man, the Exxon oil. Oh, yeah, Rex uh, Tillerson. Rex Tillerson was the Exxon oil man. When, um, sorry, I'm getting a, a call there. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, I mean, I was in Moscow for the trial of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was the oil man who was arrested by Putin in Siberia. Um, and I got involved in his story and, and got to know his son. And it was fascinating because the, the, the main, the number one dissident in Russia was an oil man. <laughs> And he had the, uh, was running the company Yukos. He's an oligarch, but he started to to lean towards the West a little bit and started to wanted to make a deal with the either Mobil or or Exxon to uh, to pursue the Northern Territories um, for oil for the oil reserves there and needed Western technology. Well, long story short, but Putin had him arrested, um, put him in jail. And his his uh, henchman Igor Sechin ended up taking over Yukos, combined it with Gasneft. Gasneft, I think that's in there. Gazprom, um, and that became the biggest oil company in the world, or one of them. And they and they combined with I think Exxon and BP and right. and 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 um, what do you call it? Uh, drilled in the Northern Territories with that technology and became the number two producer of oil in the world. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I just, I, I'm very aware of the Putin uh, geoeconomic, you know, um, strategy um, from, from years ago, having been in Russia and having read so much about it. And um, this is predictable. And, you know, and how, why, why did he support Trump and why did he help Trump win and sabotage Hillary Clinton? Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State when the, the first set of sanctions was right. implemented after Crimea, right? So he's had revenge against Hillary. Also, alternative energy. This is the thing that's so stupid, and you, you feel powerless. Alternative energy is the way to get away from being controlled by Putin. If Putin just turns the faucet 
um, Germany has no power. My half of Europe has no power. He, he holds that over Europe, you know, perpetually until you get to alternative fuel. And, of course, the GOP here wants to use this as an excuse to build up uh, production of oil right. in America instead of moving towards alternative energy. I don't understand it. I just don't understand so much. And the older I get, the less I get it. And um, I do feel powerless. But um, I can't give into it. We're talking with Richard Schiff on downtown. Well, we'll nowhere near as important, certainly, but but equally frustrating. Uh, we've talked uh, last time you were on with us. We talked about your love of baseball and shared stories of uh, you growing up a Yankee fan. Uh, well, I was a Red Sox fan at the same time. But here we are. No wonder uh, we don't like it. No wonder we don't like each other. <laughs> well, here we are when we we need something to distract us and and. They can't figure it out. They can't get it together. I don't know. I, I blame the owners and a and a bad commissioner more than anything else. Yeah, you know, it, again, it's it's so stupid. Um, there's so much money to be had, um, and they, you know, just the more apparently the more money there is, the harder it is to divvy it up, or, or to or to or to yield, give you know, to, to compromise. I don't I don't really understand it. And I haven't even been following it except for one a couple of articles. I'm, I follow Mark Feinsand, who's a friend of mine, so I love it when his articles come up uh, on MLB.com. But uh, it's too frustrating. You know, it's like being a Knicks fan and watching the Knicks. You can't figure that out. Either. <laughs> you know, you can watch it and watch it and watch it. They're up by 16 every, every game, it seems, in the first half, and then they lose by 20. I, and, you know, things just don't make sense anymore. I just I just don't get it. The only thing that makes sense to me is how much I love my family and how much I love my wife. And um, and uh, you know you can do one thing at a time and you know just focus on that at least to start the day. But baseball, you know, we're, they're going to blow it. You know, what else is new? Exactly. Well, Richard, it's always good to talk with you. We appreciate you making time for us uh, today. As always, uh, uh, give Sheila our best. We hope she has a speedy recovery. We look forward to uh, the rest of Season 5 of The Good Doctor and hope you'll come back and join us again down the road. Uh, thanks, Rich. It's so nice to talk to you again, and uh, you guys have a great day. Keep the peace. Very interesting and knowledgeable guy and uh, always uh, willing to share his thoughts on the state of the world. And, you know, he knows what he's talking about. It's it. It pays to listen when Richard Schiff is talking. I I do every time, and I learn something every time. Yeah, he's great. Love having him on our program. Thanks to Richard Schiff. When we come back after this word from Cross Insurance, the equally listenable and talented David Roth, next after this. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back here on Downtown, the podcast, learning things this week. You, are on the road. Must have a Our next guest is the co-host of the Distraction Podcast. His work is featured at Defector.com. Always love talking with the great David Roth, who 
chats with us about a number of topics this week on downtown. Hey, how are you? Um, you know, I'm well, listen, we're on the verge of nuclear war, baseball lockout, but it's March and spring's coming, so you know, I'm okay. You? I was wondering how you were going to end that sentence because, like, <laughs> the way you started it, it's definitely been pretty heavy on my mind, but I knew there was a but coming and I knew that there was some sort of pivot that was going to be attempted. Uh, I'm all right. You know, there's so many bad things happening at once that I can't really notice any one of them uh, in particular. So it's just kind of like a, I don't know, like I've, I've overcharged, like, uh, you know, I'm in energy saver mode right now. Right. It's like the universe abhors a vacuum. Okay. Maybe we're on the back end of COVID and I'm not going to die from, from that. On the other hand, uh, Putin's crazy <laughs> and has nuclear weapons. And I got to remember how to do those duck and cover drills again. Yeah, I'm trying not to. I mean, the nuclear thing was like, I'm just old enough that was like a presence in my mind as a kid. And of course, it's, you know, beyond being scary, you know, like you ask your parents to sort of explain why you shouldn't be afraid of something. And, you know, my parents, to their credit, were like, no, it's really scary. Like, you're totally right to be afraid of that. <laughs> and that was kind of a, that was a bad beat when you're seven years old. Where I was just like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just keep feeling bad then. But it was... At this point, like, it's hard to, I had sort of forgotten how to deal with that particular anxiety, but I'm, the, the COVID, I'm focusing on the, possibly on the back end of COVID thing. We rebooked a vacation that we were originally planning on taking in March of 2020. Like, basically, we're going to be leaving two years to the day that we didn't leave. Wow. So that's a good thing that I'm hanging on to. Yeah. Is, uh, that most of the re those restaurants are still open. Um, it's still warmer in Charleston, South Carolina than it is in New York. So, like... These are the that's the scale of victory that I'm working on right now. Well, good for you. Yeah, we're uh, we're getting ready to make our masks optional in school. So I, I've got to adjust my mindset to to going in there with with a bunch of uh, many of them unvaccinated kids and take my mask uh, off and be cool about it. And, you know, my mind says my brain says you're vaccinated, you're boosted, you're, you're fine, you got nothing to worry about. But then there's that little voice going, oh, really? Oh, really? Do you know those kids? Yeah. They're the ones that gave you colds every year for 30 years, for God's sakes. That's the part of it that I think, I mean, I've obviously I've had the same thought. I think everybody sort of has. And the even knowing that you're more or less okay, there's still, you know, there's a lot of, of scar tissue to work through just in terms of the habits that we formed over the last couple of years. But the other point that you made about, like, how gross the world is, uh, is, like, has really been on my mind. I've been taking the train more though, just this last week. I've been going to the office and going to see people. And I'm not going to, like, stop wearing the mask on the subway. Like, I don't mm. miss the smells. I don't need to, like, whatever <laughs> other people are, like, eating or coughing about or yelling about on there. Like, that's fine. Like, their sputum is their own. I don't need anything to do with it. <laughs> Yeah, that's my approach too. I mean, even before there was a pandemic, uh, depending on where I was, like if I if I flew, man, I was lathered in anti-back both before and after. So that's not going to change. Yeah, and my friends that are teachers have had a similar experience to you. I think just like being in a school with a bunch of gross kids who are constantly just yelling in each other's mouths because it's like a TikTok thing now to do that is like it's gross, and they would always get these weird you know, like just down for a week with like a mystery cold that had been brewed up, like only mm. among the 15 and 16 year old population of the Bronx. Like that was where it originated. <laughs> it's brutal. Well, let's talk about, uh, well, I'll say happier things, but no, Major League Baseball. Uh, has there ever been a, a group of owners in a sport 
who cared less about their particular sport? I mean, I sure think that there's, I mean, there's a long tradition of owners that care more about breaking the players to their will than about winning games or, you know, but, and I guess also, you know, more than making money. The thing to me that's been bizarre about it is that, like, I wouldn't hold NFL owners up as an exemplar of any type of behavior that you'd want somebody to emulate. No. And yet they're making enough money that they can at least just shut up and let it happen. You know, that like as annoying as they can be, they're not trying to, I mean, well, whatever, until the next time they're not locking anybody out. Like everybody's getting rich. Everyone knows that that's also true in baseball and that the team valuations and the revenues go up regardless of how good the team is or isn't. And it, they, it's still not enough for them. I mean, that's the part of it that's been so frustrating in looking at this is that I can't really tell what the owners want. That, like, all of the proposals that they have have these little tricks. And, like, there was Ross Stripling of the Blue Jays was talking about how when they got the language back on, I guess it was Monday night, that of, that they had inserted new language in, under the uh, competitive balance tax that like had never been discussed before. Like these things, that's our bargaining in bad faith. Like if that were in front of the national labor review board, like if they would be in trouble for doing that. And yet they're just kind of doing it seemingly for yucks. Like it's not helping them. It's not moving anything closer to a goal. It just feels kind of like a kick at this point. And I love what you said about Rob Manfred. Well, at least he looks the part. Yeah. God, it's the grim. You saw the photo. Oh, we couldn't, Use it because this wasn't on our wire service, but an AP photographer got it of him uh, between, you know, while the uh, the two sides were caucusing, just working on his golf swing on yeah. the balcony. Oh, yeah. Like just the real picture of dedication from that guy. But I've been trying to figure out if he doesn't like baseball or if he likes baseball but wants to just like mess around with it constantly. So I've never gotten the sense from him that he's like, everything he's ever says about the game is like, it's too slow. It's too long. There's too much baseball in it. Uh, like, I think we should get rid of the players, whatever. All like, kind of not things that you hear fans say. But there's also, like, a level of dedication. Like, he's worked his whole life on the management side, on the internal labor relations, <laughs> like, law practice. Like, it's all really been leading up to this, to the moment where, like, everyone in America that cares about baseball is encouraging him to step into a jet engine. Like, yeah. what a what a life. What a choice. <laughs> Yeah, he dislikes the game so much, I thought he was part of the ESPN Sunday night crew. Yes, it's a similar. Well, that whole vibe, I feel like baseball really needs to, to sort of work on it. I mean, it's that way in a lot of sports, I think. I mean, you listen to Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy call a game, and you can get convinced that NBA basketball is broken, too, as long as you're not actually watching the game, which is usually cool. <laughs> But yeah, man, the whole, like, the John Smoltz thing where you just kind of, like, oh. everything that happens, you're like, we well, you shouldn't have done that. Like, that's no way to watch a game or, like, do anything. <laughs> We're talking with David Roth here on Downtown. Well, on to uh, what I, I am mystified was not a successful protest. It had the makings of something memorable. Uh, the trucker protest in Washington, D.C. for the State of the Union. What went wrong? I, well, it, the, uh, you know, long story short for listeners who weren't familiar with it was that they were dramatically short on truckers. <laughs> uh, they, they had received. They actually wound up receiving zero truckers, where they had expected many truckers. I feel like that's to a certain extent. This is like what we were talking about before, where there's like there's just too many other bad things happening now for a bunch of like 
goateed guys from Scranton, Pennsylvania to complain about mask mandates. Like we're on to other problems now. Like nobody, like as unbearable as that was when it seemed like an important thing to them. I don't think that anybody but them really wants to hear that right now. No, you're absolutely right about that. Photos of like an empty plaza. That was delightful. Well, yeah, you and you can see their frustration. They're like, but, but our thing, our thing that we were so upset. Why are you all paying attention to what's going on over there when, uh, and they're lost. Yeah. Right. Like that's just sort of like, I'm the protagonist of reality, and I have some things I'd like to say. And you're focusing on this war, which seems very short-sighted to me. Why would you not want to listen to I have this whole idea about how we got to start calling them Freedom Fries again. Because I had a bad experience watching a movie or whatever. It's just like some real interesting Americans there. Uh, uh, the video of Ron DeSantis certainly uh, got some people's attention of him uh, yelling out that, that I guess even though they were – South Florida, I think they were high school kids who were masked up, and, and yeah. he yelled at them about about COVID theater. And the irony, of course, is that the COVID theater was him doing that because I'm sure he knew they would be there, but wanted that captured on camera because everything that people like DeSantis do is designed to get them 40 seconds on Fox News. It's incredible. Can you, I mean, like, of all the, the futures for American politics, the idea that this guy's advanced team is setting up an event where they're like, I think it would be good for his numbers if he yelled at a bunch of teens. <laughs> like, can we can we make that happen? Like, it's important to us. Like, we actually, our, our internal polling shows that uh, voters think that he's too nice to kids. Like, it's just such a bizarre gambit to me. Well, because, and David, you know, it's, be, it's because those kids have been brainwashed with, you know, the, the CRT. Oh, yeah, that's right. So they uh, they believe in things like the germ theory of medicine. Now. Right, right. That's why I, I, I'm going to homeschool some. Um, <laughs> like, it's hard to know what to say about it. The thing with DeSantis to me, everybody talks about him as being like, if Trump doesn't run in 2024, that like we have to worry about DeSantis becoming president and stuff. It's worrying. I think he'd be a lousy president. I think he's done a pretty bad job in Florida, it seems like. I think he's too big a dork to get elected president, and I don't know that I want to like put any money on that. But just seeing that man who is younger than me uh, talking in the tone of a really prissy septuagenarian to a bunch of teens <laughs> and then like turning around and giving a press conference, like I just can't believe that we would – I mean obviously we've elected Donald Trump. Like all bets are off. I just don't think that we could elect a weenie as president. Mm. I don't know that we're ready for that as a culture yet. <laughs> well, and that's why he was yelling at the, the kids, because that's how you, the GOP has decided you defeat the idea of being a weenie or being weak is you yell at people. And the yeah. fact that they're defenseless teenagers, that doesn't enter into it, but you were yelling at them. And that's a good right. thing in the GOP eye. Yeah. I think it's like it's a value neutral thing for sure. That like what you need to do is be aggressive, and you have to be aggressive towards people who can't yell back at you or hit mm. back at you. That was a big, like Chris Christie was a big innovator in that space in New Jersey. He used to have these kind of like stagey arguments with uh, when he was trying to you know basically break the education union in the state. But there'd be some teacher at one of his events who would yell at him, and then he'd be like, "Oh yeah, real tough guy," but like he's the one that has a microphone, so you can just hear some voice in the audience and then he's mm. pointing his finger and he's yelling. I feel like he must feel really cheated because like he worked really hard to build the whole, like I'm the biggest loudest jerk that there is 
like, and that's going to be my appeal. And then out of nowhere, Trump comes up and just blows them off the stage. Right, because well, it, it's like what you say to your kids, you know, if they're if they're doing something like that. Look, you want to be a bully. There's always going to be a bigger bully than you, and it apparently it's true for the horse's ass theory as well. There'll always be somebody yeah. bigger. Kind of inspiring that way. It really puts things in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've talked about him before with you, but uh, my goodness, your piece recently on on the good gentleman from Alabama, Senator Tommy Tuberville. My goodness, he's figured it all out. He's back. I was so happy to be able to write about him again because uh, he's sort of. I wrote about him when he was. Uh, we were doing a theme week about it was about U.S. senators and the Ottawa senators. It's a strange website. I don't recommend that people read it. Um, that was a, that was a long time ago. But it was interesting to sort of read about Toverville and then realize that like he was going to become a total like backbench guy who would just you know he's a Republican in Alabama. He'll get elected until he dies or sits down. But it's like to see him. Uh, he came out earlier this week and was sort of explaining uh, the Russia-Ukraine affair to the Montgomery, Alabama Chamber of Commerce. And it, his explanation involved Putin invading Ukraine because it's a, Russia is a communist country and they can't feed their people, so they need more farmland. And Ukraine's got a lot of farmland. And I'm not going to going to gainsay the senators. Uh, intelligence on how much farmland is in the Ukraine. He's probably got access to information that you and I don't. Uh, every other aspect of that is wrong in a way that I find completely delightful. Like, I feel it's, it's like, obviously it's not what you want. Like, ideally someone named Tommy Tuberville, uh, just named Tommy Tuberville would not be in the United States Senate. Someone who acts like Tommy Tuberville would be as far from the United States Senate as possible. But if this is the moment that we have to live in, then I'd rather it be just like a weird golf guy making stuff up to the Chamber of Commerce and all of them being like, wow, I never thought of it like that. And if I it would have to be stupid. Let's max it out. Right. And I, I would take that. I think, well, I no, I wouldn't. I don't want him to be my senator. But then I watched the State of the Union and saw our senior senator uh, from the state of Maine sitting there with Tom Cotton and, and seemingly looking for direction, wondering, Susan Collins was, am I supposed to clap? Am I happy about this? I'm not sure. How do I react in these times? Yeah, it's probably hard being her because, like, her natural instinct is to, like, say that she's extremely concerned about something and then do what every other Republican does. And it's hard at a State of the Union deal because I think that the you're not supposed to express – extreme concern anymore like that's not the idea i was talking to a friend about do you remember the the you lied guy joe wilson in 2008 <laughs> yes yes so he's still in the house he's still there uh and you know he's still in the house despite the fact that it later came out that he was taking money from people in the clan all kinds of bad stuff but the thing that he that whole affair the part of it that feels the most ancient history to me is that he later apologized for it. right i just feel like at this point that is by the boards it's weird that, you know, whatever, <laughs> Warren Boebert didn't hire, like, a sky writer to be in the house while the speech was going on or something. Like, this is – the next level here is, is so much dumber than anything we could anticipate. But, yeah, like, poor Susan Collins it feels like a dinosaur because she's supposed – she still feels like she's supposed to act like she's sorry about stuff. Right, exactly. We're talking with David Roth here on Downtown. Well, let's uh, circle back and, and wrap up with sports. It's been pretty interesting NBA season, uh, watching the Lakers implode and uh, trying to figure out who's going to win the East. It's wide open out there. What do you think of things as we get to the home stretch? I mean, I don't 
I hope this will not seem like pandering. The Celtics are incredible. I have no idea what got into them. They started the season. I mean, I do. I read a story uh, that I recommend to people at 538 by my friend Robert O'Connell about their defense, which explained a lot to me. But that was a team I saw them early in the year, and they looked totally lost. They didn't seem to be vibing with Imi Udoka at all. And they're good. Mm. I mean, the whole East is is very good. I mean, I've seen teams go back and forth. Like the Heat seem excellent. The Bucks are still the Bucks, although you know they're obviously down some guys. To me, like I have really enjoyed how, like not just evenly matched, but how much of a kind of like styles make fights type dynamic there is in there, where all of these teams play very good defense and you know some degree of you know highly efficient offense. Like I guess the Sixers now with Harden are super efficient, and yet they're all different. And they sort of interact with each other in, in different types of ways. And so, like, while there's not any of those the sort of rivalries, like, that I remember from when I was a kid, you know, that it's like the, whatever, the Knicks hate the Celtics or whatever, you know, that like, and are, like, constantly on the verge of fighting. It's mostly, like, stylistically, all of these teams are really very, like, well-matched with each other. Mm-hmm. The Sixers seem, like unbeatable and yet I could absolutely see the Celtics beating them. I could see the Bucks doing it. Like they're all it's a question of who's where and what kind of counterpunching the coaches are doing. So it's been fun. It's nice to have the games that are on before I get sleepy be good. <laughs> yes. I agree with you completely on that. Uh, David Roth from Defector with us here on Downtown. David, great to talk with you. As always, thanks for visiting with us and uh, I hope your trip works out well. I look forward to a, a complete report when you return. Thanks very much, man. I always appreciate it. Have a good day. Always fun with David Roth pays a visit. Our thanks to David Richard Schiff and thanks to you for joining us as well. We remind you that downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And we'll see you next week. Is there a party next week for episode number 200? Do we bring in a, a marching band or something? Ooh, that'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. studio marching band. I like that. I mean, it's not that big a studio. We could get in, you know. No room for a trombone in here because somebody will get whacked in the back of the head, but a percussion and maybe a maybe a piccolo. Yeah, we'll make tubas stand out in the lobby. Right, right, as they, as they should. Uh, that'll do it for us. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast.